Welcome to the Aspen UK podcast, where we bring people together to discuss topics that matter. How delightful to welcome you to an Aspen UK webinar, this one on the future of Ireland. I'm Penny Richards and I run the Aspen Institute in the UK. Aspen's purpose since 1949 has been to convene and explore contrasting perspectives on the world and in doing so promote a free, equitable and just society. And at the core of a good society, I think, is tolerance and acceptance, the power to change and perhaps to accept that change with grace. And it could be argued that Ireland has proven itself to be a good society, changing dramatically in the last few decades. To many, it's recognised as one of the most socially liberal and diverse countries in the European Union. And the changes keep coming. The long-term impacts from its neighbour, the UK's departure from the EU, are still very much unknown. Before this conversation, and before I introduce you to these amazing people here, a quick introduction to the Aspen Institute in the UK. We are a charity that helps bridge the stark divides in the UK by bringing together leaders to help them consider their leadership values and to learn from each other. We bring people together both publicly, like today, and in more private, safe environments to debate political and social issues and help people confront different perspectives and then how to recognise how they can, with other leaders, contribute to positive change. Professor Jim Livesey and I got to know each other when he took part in one of our Aspen Leadership Seminars. He's just begun a new role as Vice President for Research and Innovation at the National University of Ireland in Galway. He joins Galway from the University of Dundee, where he served as Dean of Humanities for some time. He's had a varied career with posts at Harvard, Trinity and Sussex, as well as research and visiting appointments in France, the US and China. Jim is a global historian, so who better than to explore the future of Ireland through so many different lenses. And joining him, as you can see here, is Katrina Mullen, who's an independent cross-border and regional development expert at the Association of European Border Regions. She has the most extraordinary track record in guiding cross-border cooperation and transformation in Ireland, Northern Ireland, and internationally. Momobo Agora is a PhD candidate at the University of Limerick. She trained as a social psychologist and is now researching the multicultural identities and linguistic portrayals of othering in Irish society and media. Her work highlights media and social representation of multicultural people in Ireland. And she's also the founder of Gorm TV, an online network which reveals the social issues of Ireland's newfound multicultural generations through the arts. With her and with them is Dr. Mary Favier. She's the immediate past president of the Irish College of General Practitioners, and she's now the COVID-19 advisor to the same organisation and a member of the National Public Health Emergency Team. And as well as that is an active GP and a trainer of GPs. She spent her career advocating for reproductive justice and is the co-founder of Doctors for Choice, Doctors Together for Yes, and the Start Group of Abortion Providers. She's also the co-chair of Global Doctors for Choice. And last, but absolutely not least, is Lord Paul Pugh, a non-party political peer appointed to the House of Lords in the UK after his contributions to the Good Friday Agreement. He's the chair of the House of Lords Appointments Commission, and before that was the chair of the Committees on Standards in Public Life. He teaches Irish history and politics at Queen's University and has held an exceptional number of public service roles, including as a historical advisor to the Bloody Sunday Inquiry. I honestly do not believe we could brought together a better panel to discuss this most extraordinary of subjects. And I'm really excited about stepping back and listening. Um, thank you so much for joining us. And, and Jim, over to you. Thank you so much, Penny. And I think we'd all like to extend our thanks to Aspen for hosting this conversation this afternoon. Um, I'm going to kick off by picking up something that uh, Penny said about change in Ireland and diversity and the, the pace of change. And across every index you can imagine, um, change has been ridiculous in the, over the past 30 years. And, the town in which I'm working in, Galway, has tripled in size. 30% of the population in Galway 
were not born on the island, uh, let alone in Galway. So let me throw out the, the, the obvious question then. Can that pace of change be sustained in Ireland in the next 30 or 40 years? And it throws to my mobile. What do you think? Are, are we reaching the limits of change? Are the, the challenges we're facing such that they're going to pull us back? Or uh, is the capacity for innovation, for, um, for creativity so embedded that now we're just going to drive it forward? Well, thanks, Jim. Um, thank you so much for inviting me to this talk. I'm really glad to be a part of this with such great panellists. I think your question is um, kind of really important. As you said, Ireland is going through a huge transformative period of change over the past 30 years. Um, as of like 2019 and last census that I've been, I've been seeing, like the population of Ireland, almost 17% of the populations are um, non-nationals or not have not been born in Ireland itself. So just by the looks of the dem demographic in Ireland, we can see a huge um, shift in terms of the cultural identities that live in Ireland and that call Ireland their home. So I think um, when, when we're looking back in like 30 years ago and now that change has been huge. And when we're talking about um, if that can be sustained and if we can we can have that, I think what, what starts with that is like in terms of education. So brief, a brief history on myself. Um, my research is in studying uh, multicultural identities in Ireland, particularly looking at second generation migrants in Ireland. And what we're looking at um, now, second generation are migrants in Ireland are those who, I like to look at it in, on psychological terms, those who have developed or, or has, have had their child in Ireland and grown up in Ireland. So we're looking at um, them growing up in Ireland and seeing Ireland as their home, identifying as, as Irish themselves, but um, in terms of the wider population, in terms of those in positions of power, um, there's a lack of understanding of the, the particular needs that people of different cultural backgrounds have, particularly those who are um, who have this sort of um, duality in identities or bicultural identity, I like to call it. So I think in terms of sustaining this rapid change that we, we have in Ireland, I think it starts with education and it starts with education, educating the, the wider population as well in terms of um, the, the complexities and the difficulties these cultural communities have. I know in... Um, I know in the health field, I actually worked as a research assistant in the medical school here in, in the University of Limerick in participatory research in, uh, for migrants. And one of the difficulties that, um, that was had there is that um, a lot of the migrant populations, their voices weren't being sufficiently heard in, in terms of their own health, in terms of um, translators that were, that were available to them and things like that. So I think educating those in position of power is a, is a really good tool that we can use in, to, in terms of sustaining this rapid change in terms of cultural diversity in Ireland. And I think it's important to start um, to start doing that with um, people um, that are in positions of power and then trickle down to other positions and um, start there from people in policy, law, teachers, um, um, the Gardaí and things like that. And I think it's really important to have that education there as the foundation for us to sustain this um, rapid change in, um, in our culture. Mary, Momoa mentioned health there. Do you have any thoughts? around the manner in which our infrastructure and our resources and the way we're set up can help sustain this pace of change? Do we, do we face real challenges in, in the medical and health area? Well, well first of all, Jim, uh, the, the first thing I'd comment is I'm not sure that the pace of change has actually been that fast, that rapid, or even that necessary. You know, it hasn't been fast enough. There's so much more to do. And we've had these really headline events of, you know, in terms of abortion provision and, you know, same-sex marriage. But really, when you drill down, what's actually been the change? Our, our deep structures, and, and health is a very good example of them, the, the infrastructure in health. I mean, I work as a general practitioner under a contract that's 40 years old. There, there's very little, you know, so many pe people, individuals, and particularly new migrants, can't access a general practitioner. We have a public private divide that's deeply entrenched and with very little sign of changing. We, we have employment situations that are, uh, you know, unchanged. We have housing that's unchanged. We have endemic discrimination that's unchanged. So I think it suits a narrative in Ireland to say, aren't we all very modern and progressive? But in reality, the increments are small, they're slow, they're fantastic. And, it, and having been involved in repeal and the change, yes, wonderful. But we didn't get that great a law. There's lots to be done yet that needs to be managed. So you, know, you could write an extraordinary manifesto in health alone. 
And we see, see in the COVID pandemic how it's unmasked extraordinary problems in our health service. We've had a sequence of rolling lockdowns because our health service can't cope. But do you hear any narrative that about deep infrastructural change and funding in healthcare? No, there's tinkering around the edges. And similarly, ed our educational system, largely unchanged, largely denominational and controlled by the church. So I think we need to describe the problems we have and say, yes, there's momentum, but let's, let's move it faster. You know, I know you've been involved in precisely that on the ground form of innovation and dealing with some of the issues that Mary talked about. What, where, where are you on this change versus continuity? Um, well, I, I agree. I agree with both Mamobo and Mary in the respective points that they've made. I mean, I think um, I think the first thing to say is, that in addition to cross-border regional cooperation, ten years of my career was spent in NHS transformation. So. This is, and on the border, so this is getting right to the nub of what I believe to be some of the, the core problems straight away, which is great. Um, I, 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 think, I think, like Mamobo has said, and like Mary's, we've had demographic change, but we have not had the structural changes um, that are required to respond to that. We haven't had advances, uh, enough advances in the area of underpinning human rights, for example, um, within Ireland. Um, I'm, I'm leaving Northern Ireland out of this for a minute, but actually, if you look at um, the template that's there in Strand 3 of the Belfast 1998 Good Friday Agreement um, around the human rights area, that is one of the areas that is the least explored in so far as it is actually a template for the Irish government to look at its own human rights guarantees legislation and constitutional framework and it actually provides a template for perhaps looking at some of the structural responses that are needed to the massive demographic change that has happened in Ireland but also as Mary has said you know there, there have been some key changes um, which in a way while not enough um, have shaken the assumptions on which um, our, I suppose, our understanding of our access to rights was based. So, um, I mean, I, I think in short, um, there needs to be comprehensive human rights education the whole way through the school curriculum. There isn't. Um, uh, that is one thing you have, and I'm going to name it, we have, had, we have seen the rapid rise or the rapid emergence um, of a very visible far right in Ireland and a, you know, a, a neo-fascist movement in Ireland, which is very serious, which the government needs to be taking seriously, and which it needs to be taking seriously in the context of guaranteeing um, the European Convention on Human Rights for every single person in Ireland. So, um, you know, we've got really, really pressing reasons why these, you know, the system needs to catch up with how the people have changed, I think, maybe an easier way of saying that. I agree also, you know, that um, when you when you have um, perhaps a, a, a you know, a population who are who are maybe more ready to demand their their rights in relation to certain fundamental things like health. We have we still have huge health inequalities. We still have huge huge issues with um, women's health provision in general. Um, you know, uh, there there just is not enough attention to this. We have geographical and socially determined health inequalities. Again, as Mary said, you know, we you know deep systems transformation is what we really should be looking at right now. Um, I'm hoping against hope that there is an appetite for that. But I think what COVID has done is actually just revealed the extent of the fragility of, of, of those systems. And, and if anything comes out of this, if anything comes out of it, it is that we redesign for prevention in the future. There's so many things coming out of this, but as you, as you mentioned, the, the Belfast Agreement, I just want to throw it to Paul, just, and that question about rights, and the embedding of a rights culture across the whole island as the basis of our capacity in both jurisdictions to meet the challenges of the future, and no matter how articulated. So, Paul, given that you were, you know, intimately involved in the in the work around this, can you give can you give some assessment of how how embedded you feel that rights rights culture is in both jurisdictions? Katrina is absolutely right about the point she's making about Strand Three. Uh, it's it's very very important. And what has happened, you might run your mind back through the Brexit debate this year, two years, three years. But actually, all the talk has been 
about the EU's relationship to North-South cooperation or the Northern Ireland Assembly, whether it should have the right of consent, whether it shouldn't, and so on, on what terms. Um, the, it's almost become a two-stranded agreement. And in fact, there is a third strand and everything that Katrina says about that is completely correct. And it's personally my view as maybe we're moving, I hope, sorry, not, as maybe we're moving out of the sharp performance of acrimony, which were one reason or another probably inevitable of Brexit that uh, on either side, that, that we will get, we will discover that it is a three-stranded agreement. There is actually, oddly enough, a British document um, August 2017, uh, called Britain, uh, uh, so Ireland, Northern Ireland, a position paper. That is the last document in this process which actually refers to it being a three-stranded agreement. I, I mean, I'm just I'm, I'm interested in what happens to language over a period of time. Uh, if I could just come back to Mabobo's point at the beginning about whether Irishers can adapt. I think the evidence is that it really is a, a labile concept, that there's no inner essence to the concept of Irishness. Um, would we reasonably, because what you're essentially saying is, at this point, some of the power elites haven't quite got it, how, how much Ireland has is, 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 is changed in real terms. And Jim's picture of Galway really struck me. I'm old enough to have visited Galway in the 1950s. And I was external examiner in NUI about 10 years ago, 15 years ago. Even then, it had dramatically changed out of all recognition in terms of the nature of the people living there, the size of the place, the active, active activity going on. But I think the essential point is that the historical record is that what it is to be Irish has changed already dramatically over time, sometimes in ways which make you can make people uncomfortable. That really is, 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 is not a point I want to make at this point. What is no doubt, it's not some unchanging essence. It will change over time, has the capacity for a flexibility, and is likely to change over the next generation quite, quite sharply, in my judgment. One of the things that uh, has been most evident in Irish history over the past 100 years was that in both Northern Ireland and in Southern Ireland, women were the objects of state building. For a, for a good part of the 20th century. And all sorts of agencies, you know, were focused on female behavior as a, as, a, as, a, as a form of identity formation and other things. And then women were massively important as a social movement that then drove institutional change and legal change as well. And I suppose the question I'd, I'd throw out is, is that dynamic played out? I think Mary's gonna say no, absolutely not. Um, is that dynamic played out? Are, are women, is that, has that wave crested? And if it has crested, what is the social movement that's going to drive change in the next 50 years? Right? Mary, do you want to tell me I'm completely wrong and that absolutely the movement uh, is still the, the driver of change in Ireland? I think it, it is and will be. And as much because I think women are, are often best placed to recognise what needs to be done differently. And that is around, you know, of living, you know, the, the lived experience of inequality, the lived experience of deprivation, knowing what that means in terms of its impact on your family and your kids. And the, it, and you see it manifest in how COVID has been dealt with. We have a largely male, you know, legislature. We have, we have largely male representatives, including in, in health, who opine on, on the impact of COVID on the population. Whereas in actual fact, you hear from the women, you know, the, the deprivations and the difficulties they've experienced in their own lives, in their families' lives, and in those of their children. And it's, it, and it's interesting when you speak to, to many women, as I do every day with patients, they get the, the, the cross-referencing to new, new immigrants, migrants, working conditions, the importance of representation in the workplace, the importance of underpinning education, and you, you, you see some fantastic examples, particularly of women who work, for instance, in the traveler movement and in traveler visibility groups with the new migrant groups uh, and particularly say Roma, but into the wider community. And I think that voice w needs to be harnessed. I think, first of all, it needs to be listened to. Uh, but if it's not, I think it, you know, it, it will be ignored at the peril of, of the status quo. But I think they're again potentially going to be slow to catch up, and and it's mobilising that voice is is going to be be so important. But I think will happen. 
Does anybody else want to comment on this one about, about the social drivers for change? To Mary's point, I do definitely agree with Mary's point that um, women are the have been the driving um, force when it comes to like social change um, in Ireland, particularly. I think now, um, particularly in the past year, with um, with what Katrina was saying in terms of people um, having COVID and, and things like that, I think particularly in the past year, we've kind of taken a more um, intersectional approach when it comes to um, being the um, social drivers for change as well, and now. Um, with what Mary was saying as well in terms of women um, adopting and, and understanding the voices of new migrants and um, people of other disadvantaged backgrounds, we're actually um, op- having a more open discussion and particularly in um, institution and corporations as well, um, in terms of that intersectional lens as well, looking at different people of different cultural backgrounds and adopting um, their points of view in these kind of conversations. So I think um, as the, uh, the, the movements that happen from, from the like, the women's movement and um, people of different cultural backgrounds and um, having that internet uh, intersectional perspective it's kind of like piggybacking off that and having us to have more and um, different conversations in the Irish perspective. I want to move us slightly um, not to something contiguous but not quite the same topic which are economic models and and the the economies of Ireland north and south are structured in very different ways you know, and some of this gets a bit technical, um, but uh, we can see all sorts of strain around the economic model. If you look at housing prices, for instance, or rents, um, and if there is a housing crisis across the entire island, I think we would we would agree. Um, if you were asked, sort of one thing you could do, not a general transformation, but if there was one thing you could do at that e- at the level of the economic model to change how things work in Northern Ireland and in the Republic. What, what would you what would you suggest, Katrina? I saw you nodding. You, you drew, drew my attention. Okay, um, it's it's two words: climate jobs. Um, I think. Um, I mean, I, I think you, you look at. I mean, you look at the there 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 is a paper, um, uh, sort of a summary paper that's been published recently by PublicPolicy.ie, which looks at the different measures of well-being um, and economic performance on the two parts of the island. Um, now it's I, I'm not going to I'm not going to go through it. I'm simply going to refer you to it. And it's by Adele Bergen and Seamus McGuinness. And it's the ESRI and Department of Economics in Trinity who have published who have published it. Um, Northern Ireland is a consumer economy. It does not have a significantly large productive sector. Um, Ireland, the Republic of Ireland, the South. Um, when my dad used to want to annoy my mother, he used to refer to it as the Free State, but she was a Dubliner and he was from Derry. But <laughs> shall we say, Ireland, Ireland has a massively productive economy, which has actually grown over the last year. Um, and as 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 a very dear um, associate of mine, um, who may be listening and will know who he is would also say, you know, Ireland has bagged the peace dividend in terms of economic growth, Northern Ireland hasn't. But what we all face at the moment in terms of economic transformation is the simple fact that if we are not producing what we produce and consuming what we consume with things like clean energy within 10 to 15 years, then we can all go home because we will absolutely just fall off the edge economically. And I think into that comes the concept of, um, shall, you know, different types of north-south cooperation, which are sectoral, which are territorial. So, for example, one of the things that I've been involved with over the last three to four years has been brokering the architecture of a partnership that involves central government on both parts of the island and the local authorities of the northwest city region, which is essentially Derry, Strabane, Donegal. Derry, for those who who aren't aware is the fourth largest city on the island of Ireland. It has suburbs that are on the other side of the border. So it is a very, very unique region that needs unique working in order to work properly. And that region is looking at a shared approach to green transformation. And I think in Ireland, North and South, what we need to be looking at now is what a just transition looks like um, in terms of a transition to um, you know, clean energy, um, the liberation that comes with that, the liberation that comes with new forms of energy being generated, 
in new economic models um, that can generate community wealth, um, that can essentially stimulate new industries, um, which can safeguard those industries that are energy dependent, but move them over into um, you know, clean energy consumption. And in, into that space comes all of the activity and all of the new economic activity um, that is needed um, to lift tides to it. I mean, we still do have issues with long-term unemployment in both parts of the island. We still have issues with people with barriers to flexible employment. We also now have um, emerging, emerging as we slowly may be from the worst of the pandemic, we have to talk very seriously about the future of work and what that looks like. Where is that located? Who does it and when? And how do people combine paid work with their unpaid work? And that in particular relates to women. So, you know, there are all of these things, but if I could if I could distill it down to, I suppose, maybe two things, it would be climate justice, climate jobs, and, and, and clean energy, and, and looking at how we, as an island, um, start to safeguard the progress that has been made in terms of the growth, um, look at how Northern Ireland could play a role in a, you know, in, in, in a sort of a green island based economy, which is about sustainability. I mean, we are an island in the North Atlantic. Um, you know, th there is no reason why um, a new type of productive economy cannot uh, perhaps benefit more both parts of the island more equally. This is not a constitutional question. This is this is something that needs to happen regardless of the constitutional question. So what I think we should really be looking at, for example, you know, uh, you know, in the next few years, is put identity politics to one side, decentralize, decarbonize, and you know, look at something very practical like both parts of the island on the 31st of December 2029 at midnight, we switch to 100% clean energy. You know, let these are the sort of things we really need to be looking at now boy up and to sustain our economy beyond the progress that's been made in the last 20 years. There's so much Jim, there. I see lots of people want in. Mary? But just going going back to one of your earlier themes about the pace of change and what's changed and who'll change it. I, I think one of the most one of the, the things historically is is emigration from Ireland and why did our young people emigrate? And it was economic, first of all, but then there was huge amounts of socio-cultural issues that people just didn't want to live and be part of. I think unless we harness this now and follow what Katrina is saying, we risk using, losing our younger generation again who will not want to live here. They will not want to be part of that society. They will not want to be proud of Ireland you know, if we do not grab this and change it and make it something we're proud of. Because I, I see with my own two who are 20 and 22, this is a really important topic. This is why they they are emigrating. This is why their friends are emigrating. It's, it's how they envisage themselves. It's how they conjure themselves. And unless we harness that and recognize it for the risk it is, if we don't, we, 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 we are threatened and and this uh, by definition has to be a cross-border border issue and it can be a fantastic opportunity and we can look to our young people who will substantially be women because they do have a very clear sense of the green agenda and and turn to them to say lead us in and through this and we, we can do it then all our mobile who because i feel like everybody wants a piece of this one right <laughs> Well, I, I, I do want to comment briefly, uh, and uh, there, uh, I suppose you're asking for very brief things that we could argue for. One thing I do think, to go back to what Mary said earlier, I do think there needs to be some, it's time for some radical reform of medicine uh, and the way it's practiced in, in, in the Republic, because the pattern of development, Ireland's tremendous pattern, we could have tremendous recovery from the crash a dictator goes the speed of that recovery, huge achievements, but it does depend on FDI overwhelmingly, foreign direct investment. It's been a brilliant achievement, by the way, of, of a number of Irish officials to be able to attract that and make that pitch throughout the world. But it has created a lot of people, and you can see it in electoral patterns, who feel completely left out. And one of the obvious areas is, 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 is reform and a move towards greater essentially more explicit social medicine. I, I make, actually, I come from a, a medical family which is principally 
my aunts and so on worked in, 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 in the Irish Republic. My mother is a Dublin graduate as well, medical school. She worked in the North. And I'm just very conscious of the fact that this is an area where it, it, it's, it, it's probably the major area. I know there's a housing crisis, but after that or in there, the major area where the Republic really, really has to move. Uh, and on the North, what's been said, it's, it's not, it's an economy, it's not a producer economy. It, 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 the irony of the current deal is that it does actually enhance things for producers in Northern Ireland. It makes it harder for consumers. Uh, um, and there are big, genuine problems about that, big difficulties, but they're not just teething difficulties, they're real difficulties. That having been said, the interesting question is going to be, is it really going to be the best of both worlds for Northern Ireland's economy? Is there going to be an incentive which promotes the production side in Northern Ireland, uh, which leads to more investment? And nobody actually knows yet. There, there are a lot more inquiries at the moment about this from coming from outside, but nobody actually really knows the answer to that question, whether Northern Ireland's going to be like, I've written this, like Dubrovnik in the later Ottoman Empire, which is sort of strategically placed and trading with East and West. Uh, and nobody knows that, but I, there is a potential opportunity there. There, And I say that with full acknowledgement of the problems that many people have, by the way, the protocol is currently working out, uh, um, which are very serious problems. Uh, but there is a potential opportunity there to at least modify the description, which Katrina quite accurately gave a couple of minutes ago of the northern economy. That's really interesting. I'm going to, before we move to the questions around Brexit and um, and constitutional questions, which are, as you can imagine, all over our questions, uh, the, what questions, uh, because that that's a beautiful and open question which we can we can have an awful lot of fun discussing. Before we pivot there, I want to take up the other side of Paul's con uh, contribution and ask about Ireland and the world a little bit. Um, and this is, I think, something that folk often have trouble wrapping their head around. The island of Ireland projects into the world way above its demographic weight and way above its, its economic weight. Culturally, it's an important place, right? And you know, Paul invoked uh, Dubrovnik. I know Katrina works in Eastern Europe. We have post-imperial features, we've got post-colonial features, we've got late capitalist features. We've got a whole lot going on. But I think we haven't really thought about our political place in the world. And I'm going to ask a couple of, hopefully, our, 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 our slightly provocative questions in that the Republic of Ireland's neutrality has been absolutely important to itself, but it hasn't been really, really neutral. <laughs> and as uh, the European Union, our Europe in some other form, has to find its place in the world in a place of emerging power blocks and where the uh, Atlantic Alliance isn't the defining feature of foreign policy and defense policy. Let me ask you a really direct question. Do you think Irish neutrality will still be there in 20 years? And could the Republic survive giving up Irish neutrality? The North is different. The North, as I always like to tell people, has a permanent seat on the, um, on the UN Security Council but through its membership of the United Kingdom. But, um, Rarely used in that way. But anyway, my question: uh, Will will neutrality survive? Should neutrality survive? Katrina, why don't I ask you? That's a nasty question. Why don't you take that one? <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. Well, I, I I think first of all, um, I think you know the at the heart of the of at the heart of Irish neutrality is a very conscious commitment to. Ireland exercising its influence as a small country. Um, its role, it punches above its weight in terms of uh, tricky diplomatic processes internationally. We know that. Um, it's just taken its seat on the UN Security Council. Um, I, think, uh, I think Ireland bending its neutrality would be a mistake. Um, I think for there are so many other countries in different parts of the world whose sustainable future will be utterly dependent on them finding a way to exist in the way that Ireland has existed. Um, it will save them from being literally devoured in the context of geopolitics. Um, and I think Ireland um, has been at this for long enough to be able to provide some hope on that. So I, I think it's very easy when we're standing on the island or the islands um, to, to be insular. And I think we have to remember how we are regarded internationally 
Um, and, you know, it may feel a bit like imposter syndrome from time to time because, you, you know, you get people saying, God, you've made so much progress in Ireland on the peace process. And, and then, you know, when you're, when you're in, in, your, in your more um, despondent moment, you'll say, well, you know, there are still issues there. But, you know, at the same time, we've got to remember that even those things that, because we are our own worst critics, you know, we, we, we are perfectionists in this country around these kind of things, but we have to remember what it is that in our imperfection we can still offer. And um, I mean, I, I, I facilitated a workshop um, three or four days ago, last Friday, um, as part of uh, the Council of Europe's Western Balkans programme. And the um, theme was cross-border cooperation and tourism. And we had speakers from Ireland um, who talked about the progress that had been made on joint uh, tourism marketing and place-based cooperation in the last 20 years. And for all of us, um, it was an opportunity to sit back and say, well, you know, actually, this is really, this has 20 years of achievement behind this. There's quite a lot has been achieved here. And also the response of people who were attending that from the Western Balkans was very much, you know, this, the, the, this kind of um, experience to be able to hear it from the horse's mouth. We appreciate being able to hear about the challenges, but we appreciate that sense of hope that countries like Ireland give us because they have managed to do these difficult things and I think from that point of view Ireland should never forget that perhaps its best power is in its neutrality but in a very very positive um, and sometimes daring expression of its neutrality sometimes taking the time to stick their head above the parapet and saying the things that are unpopular um, but you know I, I think um, when you're small, you have to think of creative ways uh, of self-defense. And I think neutrality is Ireland's best self-defense. Okay. Anybody else want to come in on this one? Well, Mobo, maybe? Do you give some thoughts on this one? Um, yeah, thank you for the question. I just, I'm just i just echoing what Katrina was saying. I, was, I just had a bit of notes out here on um, Ireland's neutrality. I think that to come out of that sort of neutrality, something that we're kind of comfortable with, would be a what word do I want to use? Would be something difficult for Ireland to do in terms of um, escaping that neutrality because it's kind of something that we're, we're used to and coming out of that neutrality would kind of put us into realms that we're not comfortable with and kind of put put our backs against the wall. That's the, that's the thing I'm seeing okay. in my head. And it would make, it, make us um, put us into assemblies that we're not used to. I think so remaining in that neutrality would, would be best, but that's just me. And I think there's other, other opinions that could be held in this case. I think Jim, there's the issue as you flagged of what, what, what neutrality really, you know, in terms of we've been very West aligned uh, and, and that might makes, you know, if we're looking at neutrality in the context of East West, we, you can see where we're directly aligned, but is that really relevant? I mean, is it neutrality here about the dynamic with China? You know, or, or is it the, the new and developing nations? I, I think we would be very ambivalent around the issue of neutrality with China because we're very pro-China in terms of its investment and its money and, and foreign direct investment. So we, we have our issues. But I agree with Katrina and Mamabu that the, our, we, we almost get have our cake and we eat it. We are positioned uniquely as a small, sort of we like to play the slightly oppressed, hard done by card, we, we can always empathize, and I, uh, and, but the fact that we're not seen to be in the pocket of the big players is really important to us. And even, even say in the context of reproductive health and my role in Global Doctors for Health, the, the, the ability to us to, to communicate with and empathize and share with, for instance, the Global South would be a very significant part of the need to uh, the work on reproductive rights. Uh, you know, there's no looking to the US anymore in this area that that, you know, people now look to Ireland and its unique achievement in this area. And it's because of our neutrality that we're not seen to be aligned, that it's really useful to us. And we have this unique voice. And I would agree, we, we lose that at our peril. Okay, that's really interesting. Paul, do you want to comment on that? Yes, just just briefly, Jim. I mean, I agree. I don't see where the dull majority comes from to end Irish neutrality. I just don't don't see that any any time soon. But it is worth saying that it depends entirely on circumstances you can't anticipate. When Ireland was trying to join the EU for a while, I remember when I was doing my book on Lamas. Uh, uh, 
came out a long time ago, 1982, but there was a, a sense in the Irish government that they might as be part of joining the EU, would, would have to join NATO. And it's fairly clear that senior people have been a fool for all their difficulties with that, just said, well, if we have to, we have to. Now, it didn't turn out to be the price of entering the EU, but it's just an indicator things change. Ireland was very lucky with neutrality in the Second World War, to be honest. It, 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 and it's been very lucky in general that it, couldn't, it didn't pay a price that it might have paid for it. And it will depend in future on threats. And there is an argument among some people uh, who, who write about these matters in Ireland that there are greater threats now to Irish security coming from uh, Russia and so on. I don't know whether that's true or not, but the only way I can see a, a change in Irish neutrality is a perception that there is some enhanced threat level from somewhere which can only be met by that. I can't see it changing as a result of any autonomous uh, development within the society itself, which is, I think, is perfectly clear, is perfectly happy with neutrality as a policy. And for all that, you know, its success has been measured on a, a, a good deal of luck, actually, as much as anything else. Well, you know, you know, Napoleon always said, don't tell me if he's good, tell me if he's lucky, right? Yeah. <laughs> So um, I'm going to turn to some of the questions in the uh, Q&A, and a lot of them um, are turn on constitutional questions and historical questions. So I, I want to start. I want to have two. I want to get at least two in before we run out of time. The first one is about commemorations. Yeah. Um, so the, as we'll all be aware, um, the centenary of Northern Ireland falls this year, and the question has been asked, and I know the the Ukron has, has been raising this question as well about respectful and ethical commemoration uh, and the manner in which, as it were, history remains present in our future. Um, and this is a proximate future, not a long-term future. Do we have the capacity as an island to commemorate, recognize, mark the centenary of Northern Ireland in a respectful and non-contestatory, or contestatory in the right way, in the sense of Everybody doesn't have to agree about it, but that the um, we can do that in the public sphere in a positive and useful way. Right. I'm going to go to Mary first. I know we're both from Cork, Mary. We're the first mm -hmm. away from from Northern Ireland. Um, but what's your view on, on on that in terms of the maturity of the country, its capacity to to handle some of the more difficult periods of its past? Because next year will be the Syrian civil war, which for the Republic is going to be the more difficult one. I think the first thing is that we have to do it. We have to acknowledge it has to be done and we have to find a way of, of making that work. And we have to really challenge ourselves that we're, we're not just defaulting into an old uh, framing, whether it's Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael, that we have, to, we have to commemorate very much in the context of where we are today. And whether that's an acknowledgement of Sinn Féin's role or an acknowledgement, again, of our young people or our, our new migrant populations, our new Irish, that what's their understanding? What do they see as an important? What are we trying to achieve? What are the aims and objectives of the commemoration rather than passing time and nodding at a marching band? So we also then, I think, need to honestly ask, well, what do the population of Northern Ireland want out of this, both of the communities? Because there's a presumption that this is our dialogue and it's ours to do, and they'll only annoy us if, if, if there's a, a commemoration you know, of, the, of the foundation of, of the Northern Irish state. It's gonna be very challenging. And for m so many of us, we were brought up and reared in a deeply, um, divided but generally nationalistic republican tradition and it you know, and it has made us very proud and very lacking in knowledge particularly as you say from cork where it just seems to be somewhere else you know the northern the northern ireland and it you you almost feel like a tourist there uh, and i i think it's to bring it's to bringing together i think inevitably where we are going to have a union, we are going to have you know, a joining. It's how that's framed and when that happens. But the commemorations have to start now, but they have to look to the future, I think, rather than the past. I'm going to work my way across as I see the panel. So, Mamobo, what are your thoughts on this issue of commemoration and the presence of the past in the, in the future? 
Yeah, I, I totally echo what Mary was saying. I think there's a great importance in in unifying these kind of voices. When Mary was talking about having um, people from the from the south and the north talking, and people from different um, culture backgrounds, people from different um, generations, I think that there's a great importance in having conversations like this between these kind of communities as well, in in order for us to have that sort of like shared understanding of what we think is is the best way to approach this commemoration because without that it's it's just going to be like he said she said and it, there won't be that kind of shared understanding so i think the, that that importance of a uni unification is important for us in the future okay thank you katrina okay. on this question of commemoration uh, which is a very it's a really tricky one it, it's yeah yeah it, it is it is um i mean i i suppose Specifically on the on the issue of the I suppose the, the the anniversary of the foundation of the creation of Northern Ireland. I mean, I I do I do actually think it's been a pity um, the particular choreography and the various dynamics that um, that have occurred around this. Now it, it's 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 an unfortunate co coincidence that it's happened in the midst of the Brexit fallout as well. Doesn't help in terms of looking positively at self-expression for the people of Northern Ireland. But I mean, I, I do feel, um, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a dairy woman, you know, I, I was reared, I was reared in Northern Ireland. I was, I'm an NHS baby. Um, I'm an Irish speaker. Um, I've spent equal time working in both jurisdictions. Um, I mean, there is, there is some kind of a civic belonging in Northern Ireland that is being missed in all of this. I think it's a pity. I don't think it's going to be sorted out this time, maybe for the 150th. Um, but I do want to I want to just sort of note that I do also want to make the point that the commemorations and I, I had a quick look in the chat there. Uh, sorry, the Q&A. Um, we were talking about that entire period of commemorations from 1920 to 22. So, you know, we had the creation of Northern Ireland, but in doing so, we also had the establishment of the Irish border. Um, that was immediately followed by a civil war in yeah. what was then the Free State. Um, and, you know, that was, I mean, that was an incredibly painful experience for Irish society to go, to go through. Um, I believe that the peace process in Northern Ireland, despite all of the difficulties with legacy, um, there has been more of a publicly, uh, sorry, shall we say, there's been more public permission to talk about the legacy and the impact of, of the recent, when I say the recent conflict in the last 40 years, we have had to talk about it. Um, we, in a sense, there has been an expectation that we do talk about it. The civil war in Ireland was never talked about. I mean, people died with the memories of that. Uh, people were so traumatized by their memories of it that they couldn't talk about it. And, you know, at the time, that's what societies did. They came out of a crisis and they moved on and they got on with normal life. That's what happens after wars. But, um, so I think I think it's it, there's there's a lot of complexity around the issue of commemorations. Um, uh, I suppose as an historian, um, I have to say um, selective narratives don't help when it comes to commemorations that are as complicated as this. Um, I think if 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 anything, we should take some learning from the things that we haven't been able to do a hundred years on. And work out what those are, and what what is what what what's underlying those uh, shortcomings that we have in how we how we've been able to do this. And maybe, you know, maybe they can provide us with some signposting for the next fifty to hundred years. Yeah, I know it is so complex. I'll just uh, before I come to Paul, I just think, you know, the, the, I think as historians, looking at Paul, I think we can we can we can definitely celebrate the way in which the historical profession has well served the country in working toward a more complex understanding of the many threads of experience that go down. But that is not, I think you're absolutely right, Katrina, that is not embedded in everyday life and in a lot of people's hearts. You know, I, I think of Fergal Keane's book on his family in in North Kerry and the way they were affected by violence and the way that it was a multi-generational experience. Absolutely. My, my own family has, has a, was a, had a Southern Unionist working class wing, which everybody just shut up about for 50 years. And that slowly re-emerged as people tell tales of our great grandfather and what have you. But so I think there are lots and lots of, 
of complexity there about commemoration, even though we've done a good job, I think. Yeah. One more thing on that, Jim, because I, th I think it's so important um, just on that issue of, um, uh, you know, the understanding of the role of intergenerational trauma. Again, you know, we've had an opportunity in Northern Ireland to look at that. Um, there has been research in recent years. We do have recognition of the impact of trauma on lifelong health outcomes. There is research being led by people um, in, you know, and, and being championed by people like Siobhan O'Neill, the issues around, um, uh, you know, intergenerational trauma and things. There are things happening that will allow us to look into things that we didn't explore for a long time. Now, if we can share that information and share that learning, um, but it is absolute. I mean, every family has it, you know, every single family, you know, has some experience of this. Um, and um, I, I, it's, 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 I think we're, we're probably more, shall we say, emotionally and psychologically literate now than we were 100 years ago. And maybe we should put that to good use in the next 10 to 20 years, while people still have memories and, you know, um, understanding, you know, how, how, how memories get passed on um, and how trauma gets passed on. Another thing we should remember is that this time 100 years ago, the world was emerging from a pandemic as well. So that in a way gets us to other aspects of people's experience at that time that I think is actually very relevant to how we go forward now and how we design our future, because it is very much about how we design our future now. So that's my response to that. That's an, an excellent. Paul, let me ask you to make some comment on this as well. No, I, I, I absolutely buy it. Katrina's quite right. It is unfortunate that the 100th anniversary of the Iron falls in the middle of the acrimony over, over Brexit, and, and she's spot, spot on about that. Um, it, it is, I think, normal in a society to mark these significant centenaries or whatever, uh, and it doesn't mean that you push problems under the carpet or don't acknowledge the dark side of history. I actually chaired the uh, Parliament, um, was co-chair of the UK Parliament's commemoration of the 800 years of Magna Carta. And people immediately got on board and said, don't give me all this talk about Merry England and roast beef and old England and English liberties. Uh, my grandfather was a minor or people said, look at the discrimination against women and so on. And so in the debate that ensued, uh, and um, I chaired it first Tristan Hunt, who was a Labour historian, and then quasi Cartain, who was the final chair after I left Parliament, uh, um, the, the, you know, in the debate that ensued, all these diversities, all these dark sides came into play. And again, I would hope that in the case of Northern Ireland, the um, centenary the committee working on this is employing the Greater Centenaries website. And already, for example, Professor Henry Patterson has had a piece on there about the Belfast shipyard expulsions, which Catholic workers and also uh, Protestant labour supporters suffered so badly. And that is part of the events leading into the establishment of Northern Ireland. Something else that's got to be said, there is actually a special duty on Irish nationalists here, which is this, that with the Good Friday Agreement, you accept the democratic legitimacy of partition. There has been a retrospective validation of that. Therefore, to turn around now and say, I don't want to hear about your silly 1921 business. At one level, it's explicable. At another level, it, it, you know, and it certainly would be justified to people who were celebrating it were not talking about the dark side, the bad results for Catholics in Northern Ireland and Belfast in particular. Um, uh, but on another level, really, the Good Friday Agreement means that we have all accepted that there is a principle of consent and that Northern Ireland has at least that degree of legitimacy. So I think, you know, to some degree, to be honest, in the spirit of the Good Friday Agreement, we all have a duty to try and commemorate this properly, but certainly warts and all, that has to be the case. Mm. One other thing about this, so hard is it to predict things? And I know now everybody, there's a narrative now that Brexit means Irish unity, and who knows, I don't know, uh, uh, in terms of its long-term consequences. But the narrative in 1921, every nationalist believed this can't last, this, this Northern Ireland business definitely can't last at all. And the unionists talked about that settles it for a generation not five, which it's been. The unionists, when you look at the unionists, that, that's that, set that for a generation, but they're not saying five generations, which is what it turned out to be. So nobody actually had a, 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 a crystal ball. Something else about this, everybody assumed if Northern Ireland couldn't pay its own way in the world, as it had done 
in the decades before the partition because it was uh, Belfast was arguably the world's leading industrial city, certainly one of the world's leading industrial cities. Doesn't turn out like that. Interwar economy, Belfast slumps like all the other cities like that. But everybody assumed if you can't pay for yourself, British government's not going to pay for you. And everybody on all sides assumed that the union assumed that actually, actually the logic of the union was at the end of the day, they actually said the union means we have to make sure that certain types of poverty and so on in Belfast are avoided and we'll write the checks. That's actually what happened in London. There is a logic to the union, which is, you know, not what anybody ever intended, not what anybody ever advertised, just what happened when officials were faced on their desk and saying, well, if I don't write this check, children will starve on the shankle of the falls. I'm not going to do this. I'm going to write the check. And then with the welfare state coming, that dramatically changes it. So that's something else. There's something about the union for poor regions and its tendency, despite all rhetoric or expectation on all sides, to be actually good for poor regions. And that is something that's important also for Scotland as well at this moment. But that is, a, again, something that nobody expected. Everybody said, no, the unionists themselves, if we can't pay for ourselves, we can't pay on this before, we're done for. Not at all. It actually turns out to be a relative strength in the end, oddly enough. Jim, I think an important thing to ask is, is who wants to commemorate? Who's actually that interested? Because I think if you look generationally, many, many of the younger generations in Ireland have largely passed on by around the whole issues of the North, South and Northern Ireland, because so many of us being from North Kerry myself, we're reared on it, we're steeped in it. We would have sacrificed even to this day, any amount, including economically, to, to look at, at future unity. I think if you asked many of our younger generations, they just not as interested, they're not as interested in commemoration. And I think the big issue then about future unity or border polls is what are they likely to stand to lose in terms of the disparities in the economy and the, the additional prosperity in the South. And I'm not so sure they're that interested. And so we need to make sure that we include everybody in this narrative, that it's not just a historic throwback, that it looks to the future and, and getting everybody involved. I can see Penny lurking and she's going to remind us we have two minutes um, and we really do need to close at six, even though as ever with Ireland, Penny one could speak for many hours and would reach, would reach no end of the interesting topic. I, I just think it's an interesting place to end because it ends with a question. You know, has, have the five generations of experience in Northern Ireland now made that a socially different and culturally different place to the Republic of Ireland, right? Notwithstanding other representations, other things which very much tie those two places together. And that's a question of fact. You know, this is the stuff of sociology and of economics that, you know, where we can we can look at that. And 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 this could I, I let's just wait. There I'm 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 racking up a, a an SFI grant in the back of my head where I, I can think about the kind of survey data that I'd like to get out of places like Tyrone and Armagh, about underneath the expressed political identity, what is the social identity? Has the narrow ground developed more ground underneath it? I would ask. Penny, you're going to want us to stop, aren't you? Because we're going to, I know we'd like to keep talking. But I'd love to carry on listening. Well, so I'm, feeling, I'm feeling like a bit of a killjoy. And I'm also going to, before anything else, apologise. There are quite a vast number of, of questions that have been set to you and you haven't got close to answering them. So, so my apologies for a very curious um, audience who I think are going to be very disappointed that that I'm, as I said, being killed during stopping you. It was been, you know, I, I'm quite surprised by the last hour. I've been incredibly gripped, but I am struck by your, your sort of tempered enthusiasm, I suppose, for the future of Ireland, which is the topic, the ridiculously broad topic we set you. You know, it was really interesting to hear you talk about recognising the power of change, but also the stark challenges that lie ahead. And, and thank you for having me. And I, I'm sure lots of others think about subjects like neutrality and, and health and Ireland's cultural place in the world. And it was also salutary to hear you acknowledge the dark side of Ireland's history and, and what that means for the brighter side of Ireland's future. And of the duty you all discussed so carefully about power of holding a an honest commemoration of, of partition and, and other factors in, in, the, in the past. So I've, I've loved listening to you and, and I am sorry we're stopping. I could have listened for so much longer. Jim, Katrina, Mary, Momobo and Paul, 
Well, an extraordinary app, fascinating, illuminating, and hugely educational for me and I think a lot of others. So thank you so very much. That's it for now. Thank you so much for listening. You can follow us on Twitter at UK underscore Aspen. And to stay up to date with our work and future discussions, check out our website at aspenuk.org. Well, wasn't that amazing? It was created and produced by podcast partners. They're really lovely people and rather good at all this podcasting guff. Find out more at podcastpartners.com. Listener.